Welcome to ASHTO Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Our guests on the podcast today are Trudy Kiefer and Amy Reed, both senior quality analysts with the ASHTO Accreditation Program. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, that was Trudy first and Amy second for those of you listening. There's no video here, but uh, I'll do the best to try to make sure that people know who is who uh, when you guys are speaking. Amy, my first question is for you today. The topic is certifications. Why might someone want to have their staff get certifications? Absolutely. There's several reasons that a laboratory would choose to have their staff certified. The most common would definitely be because a specifier is requiring it. So a specifier is someone that a laboratory is doing a job or project for. It might be their state DOT, it could be a federal project, or even a local project that is requiring them to have accreditation. And so that specifier might require a specific ASTM quality management system standard. And then in those standards, they often require certifications. Yeah, let's talk about those ASTM quality management system standards. Uh, One of the most popular ones that drives people to get certifications is ASTM C1077. Trudy, can you tell me a little bit about why C1077 might require certifications for technicians? Because in the standards as well as specifiers, we want to make sure that laboratory technicians and laboratory supervisors are competent in the work they're performing. And of course, working with concrete is very crucial. So certifications really show a specifier that the technicians know what they're doing to perform that work. And you mentioned supervisors too. Trudy, why might a supervisor need to be certified? A lot of times, some of the supervisors are actually performing the work themselves, so they're performing in the technician role, but also because they're overseeing staff, and we want to make sure that the supervisor knows what he's doing, as well as how he's training his technicians to have that sort of certification kind of goes along with it, so he knows how to review the reports as well, and it just shows the supervisor's competency as well. Great. Amy, that's C1077, but there are plenty of other certifications. Are there any differences in the requirements of quality management system standards for uh, requirements of certifications, you know, with the content or number of questions or anything like that? There is, unfortunately. It can get a little complicated sometimes. That's why we're actually having a webinar on November 19th. Trudy and I are going to discuss this topic more in depth. But the different quality management system standards All of them have sometimes major, sometimes just slight differences as far as, you know, if uh, external certification is required, if a professional engineer's license would be accepted in place of a certification, if the laboratory is allowed to use internal certifications. So that all can get really confusing to laboratories when they're trying to conform to these ASTM quality management system standards. And that's something that during Trudy and I's webinar, we're really hoping to break down and make a little more clear for everyone. Trudy, what do you think the most confusing aspect of uh, certification requirements are for the laboratories you work with? Okay, I think a lot of confusion comes with 
Laboratories don't understand that all technicians that are performing that type of scope, such as aggregate or concrete, everyone needs to have certifications if they're performing the work, just not one person. So anybody that is actually performing that work on that scope and they want to be accredited for a C1077 concrete, they have to have that certification for all their personnel, including that lab supervisor. Amy, some of these standards, and I know this can get really confusing, they kind of build on each other. Uh, the one that comes to mind is E329. It's an ASTM standard. It's commonly used by building officials and other vertical construction projects often require it. I know laboratories sometimes will come to us and say, I just need to get accredited for E329, and E329 has certain provisions that may not be completely laid out the way some of the underlying ASTM standards like C1077 or C1093 and masonry might be. Uh, can you explore that a little bit? Sure. So the way it works from the accreditation point of view is um, most E329 scopes, so a laboratory can choose to have those for aggregate, concrete, SFRM, a lot of other material types. Most of them have an underlying standard, as you've mentioned, things like um, C1077 or D3666. If they do have an underlying standard, which would mean another standard that the laboratory needs to have accreditation for before they can even um, meet for E329, we focus on that first standard first, make sure the laboratory meets all of the certification requirements for that, and then we move on to E329. Um, a specific example of this would be something like C1077. It actually allows for the supervisor to have an internal certification, but since E329 requires that the supervisor has an external certification, um, a lot of times a supervisor will have a combination of internal and external to meet for both. Okay, so in that scenario, if somebody had an internal uh, certification, then are you saying they'd be able to conform to C1077, but then if they needed E329, they would not be able to get that? Or, or is there some sort of uh, caveat or allowance for them to get E329 accreditation uh, just because they conform to C1077? So there is not any um, like allowance or being grandfathered in. Uh, someone has to meet the requirements in both standards before E329 would be granted. Um, E329 does require that at least one test method is covered in the scope that the laboratory is pursuing. So what this means is someone could have an internal certification that covers the 10 test methods that are recovered for con that are required for C1077 concrete. And then they just have one test method covered externally for concrete, and they would still be able to meet that way for C1077 and E329. Wow. So there could be a certification out there that only has one standard covered. Trudy, there could be. do you run? Do you, sorry, Amy. Trudy, <laughs> no. do you ever run into that when you're evaluating uh, external programs that a certification might only have one, uh, one standard test method in it? It is possible, but it's pretty rare. What in your experience, Trudy, how how many tests are typically covered in an external program? Well, if we're, if we're speak, speaking to the topic of C1077, the majority of those certification programs know that there are required test methods to meet that C1077. So they've built that certification external program around those test methods. So most of the time, those test methods are included in that certification program, but possibly they might miss one. 
So they might have that in another particular certification program. So it might be something that uh, a technician would pick up that certification as well, or they might end up doing an in-house written and performance uh, documentation that would actually meet the requirements in combination with their external certification they have with all the other test methods that are required. Oh, okay, uh, so that that sounds helpful. So, so there's situations where you may, uh, or a technician certification program may be lacking in one standard or, or not meeting certain criteria, but you're saying that the laboratory is able to supplement that with another uh, solution that they've created themselves. Is that correct? That's correct. They can uh, decide to get a, do an in-house written and performance uh, documentation, and that would meet in combination with their other external certification that may be missing or lacking that one test method that's required. That's correct. Amy, when somebody writes an internal program, uh, let, let's say, let's stick with that supplementary type program. Let's say that they're just missing one standard in their, their uh, state certification program. How do they go about writing a standard that's going to be acceptable? The first thing I always recommend is um, I'll email to the laboratory, whoever's going to be writing the exams. We have a policy on our website, on the public facing website, which actually goes into pretty great detail on what sections would be required based on the um, ASTM quality management system standard that the lab needs to meet for. And so they take that document and then they compare that to um, the actual test method and start writing an exam. We don't go into detail as far as requiring a laboratory to only do fill in the blank, only do multiple choice. That's up to them and what they think would be most effective. Okay, for effectiveness, Trudy, what have you found to be an effective uh, uh, format for uh, an internal written exam? What kind of questions, you know, Amy just mentioned, we don't require them to only have multiple choice or fill in the blank or something like that, or, or uh, you know, just a, a free form question and answer. What, what have you found for the best exams that you've seen uh, to both be in conformance and be effective measures of evaluating technician competency? Well, when a writer is coming up with an, a written exam, they're going to want to review the quality system standard for the requirements that these particular exams have sections to be included. So there are certain sections need to be included in each written exam. So that's one thing I would take into consideration. And then I think the best way to see if your technician really knows the, the test method is to do a combination of multiple choices, um, maybe fill in the blank, Maybe use a couple yes or no questions, but sometimes that doesn't really give you the best view of, of a technician's uh, a competency because you can get yes or no 50% right or wrong. So usually a lot of fill in the blanks, multiple choice, um, maybe even a little bit of essay writing or, or complete this, this area, um, maybe in a sentence or two. That's how you really determine if your technician is really competent in that in that test method, and that's the ultimate key of these written exams. Amy, when you're evaluating these exams, uh, what are common mistakes made or or inadequacies in the exams that you've seen? Yeah, so it can be tough. I know most people that are making exams didn't go to school, you know, with that as their goal. So this is kind of a new adventure for them writing these exams. It can sometimes be, but something that we come across a lot that labs struggle with is um, actually 
taking questions that are going to be useful and test the technician's knowledge. So I don't recommend that you just go through every section and pick the first sentence of every paragraph and use that for your exam. You really want the exams created by someone who's knowledgeable of the test method. They know what material is important. And so they actually cover questions that are going to test the technician's knowledge instead of creating an exam that the technician can just, you know, go through, read the first couple sentences and figure it out. Okay, Amy, what, what sections are commonly missed, though? I know that C1077 and D3740, that's for soils, uh, they actually have the sections that are required to be covered uh, in these exams. What are the most commonly missed ones? So C1077 requires that technicians or supervisors, whoever's taking the exam, they actually perform a calculation. And it's very common that the written exam will just have a question from the calculation section of the test method, but not have the person performing the test perform an actual calculation. So always make sure you have an actual calculation in your exams. Something else we see missing a lot is procedure. Um, for some reason, especially long test methods, if you're writing the exam, you may, after three or four procedure questions, say, oh, that's good enough. But make sure you have enough that goes from beginning to end the test. You don't want to stop halfway through the test method. That is a very uh, sticky subject matter. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, how, how complete or how sufficient is the procedure covered. I'm working with somebody right now trying to uh, revise C1077 so we can better lay out that particular aspect of it. But I have to say it is very difficult to write that it has to sufficiently cover it without saying it has to sufficiently cover it. <laughs> and then to have whoever gets that standard in their hands be able to write an exam or evaluate an exam for a completeness. Uh, Trudy, I'm going to throw this one back at you. What what are the keys for making sure that that exam is sufficiently detailed enough to cover the procedure part? Well, like Amy mentioned, covering the procedure from the beginning to the end and not just picking just a couple questions at the beginning of the procedure. We need to really see that the technician follows along and some of the more critical parts of that procedure is something that you'll want to add that question to that exam to make sure that they're knowledgeable on that particular tricky part of the procedure. Yeah, focusing on the tricky parts is really good. And how, how might somebody, let's say that they've uh, just gone through their on-site assessment, they've received a, a, a finding about not having certifications. They say, well, I, I want to address this by writing it uh, my exams. It, can they use that report at all to, to figure out what the key areas might be, Trudy? Yes, they can take some of their deficiencies they may have received on the procedure in that maybe a technician didn't perform something accurately. And they might want to add that into their written exam just to follow up and ensure that the technician knows that this is part of that procedure because it was something that was missed during the assessment. Amy, significance in use is another aspect of these requirements that I, I think is kind of confusing. Well, I would say sampling too, because a lot of the exam requirements are that they have to cover sampling, right? Yes. Um, but that, that sampling requirement in the standard or the sampling section in the standard might simply say sample according to D whatever or C whatever. How, how is somebody able to write a meaningful exam question around that? So for sampling, you can definitely go in more detail, but what we're looking for from our interpretation of the standard at this point is that if the sampling section says do in accordance with D75, 
We do want to question where they're asking specific, asked specifically if D75 is how they perform sampling, but it's also great to go in more detail and pull a little information from D75 over to this exam. So even though it may not be in the standard, it's always great to add extra information to your exams if it's going to be useful to your technicians. Uh, consistency of review is another issue that we talk about all the time at ASHA Resource. Well, and CCRL, they talk about it a lot as well. Uh, we've talked about on this podcast so far how we might evaluate an exam, or not how we evaluate it, but what kind of requirements there are for these exams. How do we consistently evaluate these exams, Trudy? I think we consistently evaluate the exams by meeting as a group. And we meet as quality analysts as well as assessors, and this is for Astro Resource staff as well as CCRL has joined in with us as well. And we review them together and we get a consistency that way based on several people's opinions from our group, whether or not we think the exam really meets the requirement of the standards. And what is that? So that we meet as a group. Is there some sort of uh, protocol laid out anywhere that we follow? Yes, we do um, have available on our website policy and guidance documents of how we conduct internal written exams and what needs to be on them. So we do go over step by step to make sure things are on the exams and as well as everything that's listed in the quality system standard, those sections that need to be included as well. Amy, what, what kind of feedback do we get from customers when we go through this review process? You've been you've been heading this effort with the certification exam review team at Ashto Resource for a while now. What are you hearing from customers? As with anything, there is sometimes, you know, negative feedback during the process because someone's going to be frustrated if they submit exams and they think they're great. Cert <clears throat> takes a look at them and says, hey, you need to make these updates. But once someone's done the process, the majority of the time we hear this is great. This is a great way, even if we're sending our staff out for certifications to kind of monitor how they're doing internally and to check up with them before they are certified. So just remember when you're going through the process, it might be tough at the beginning, but once you get the exams approved, I think you're going to be very happy to have a quality written exam that you can give to your staff. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Trudy, when you're dealing with customers that may be frustrated by this, what what is their frustration? What's the main issue that you hear uh, that is a source of frustration when somebody's going through this certification exam and approval process? Um, sometimes the frustration is they're not really sure how to do this. You know, they're not a teacher and creating these exams, and they have to follow along with the with the policy and guidance that we give them. Sometimes they think. It might cover it enough, but like we talked about in the procedure, you do need to be detailed from the beginning to the end. And this exam really needs to cover the whole test method to show that the technician meets the requirements. So sometimes it is gonna take time to create these exams and work back and forth with us. But like Amy mentioned, once you get something, you'll be really happy and proud of that exam. And it will definitely show competency for your technicians. Now, Amy, we, we put a lot of effort into reviewing these internal exams. How many would you say we review per year? So it's slowed down a little bit um, because we don't require once someone gets their exams approved that they get re-reviewed every time we're back in their area. We're probably reviewing around a hundred set of exams a year. So that's on average two exams a week. It's slowed down a little bit right now with 
um, when we stopped assessing for a few months, but it's starting to pick up again. Trudy, we've run into this before, uh, and I think it's worth mentioning that it's not just about the content of the exam. It's also about who writes it and who administers and how it's administered. Uh, would you like to give anybody any pointers about how to avoid some issues when thinking about those topics? Well, we definitely don't want the writer of the exams to be someone that's going to take the exams. You know, that's like teach, a teacher taking the test, you know, that they just created. We do not allow for that. So you want someone that's going to create the exams that's not going to have them administered to themselves. That's one of the big uh, things that we do see from time to time. That's the main thing I can think of. Yeah, let's say that the, you know, the laboratory creates this great exam. They administer it to their technicians. How are we assured in any way that they are administering them objectively? Because they seem to have, you know, if somebody's just trying to resolve a nonconformity, for example, they may be uh, motivated to get these technicians to pass this exam. How are we able to tell if we are at all uh, whether that's been done in a fair and objective manner? Right, and that's very difficult because we're not sitting beside a technician watching them take the exam and making sure they are the one taking the exam. So we are putting a lot of trust and faith in the laboratory that they are administering these exams in a private setting and the actual technician is the one taking that exam and the technician did not see the exam or the answers ahead of time. We also do review the, the graded exams and kind of make sure that the same uh, questions were administered that we have approved as well. And we do review it a little bit as well just to make sure that uh, wrong answers weren't accepted as right answers. Yeah, I imagine that would be an indicator that there uh, was something fishy going on, right? If you, if you saw it, everyone got the, the question wrong, but it was graded uh, as if it was correct, right? That's correct. And also, if we see all five technician exams come back to us and all five have 100% on, you know, we kind of doubt that, but we really don't know because we're not there in that situation to know how they are administered. And we hope every technician is very competent and can get 100%. But maybe if they are getting 100%, maybe your exams are a little bit too easy as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and that may be something people need to consider as well, that the objective is not to have everybody get 100% necessarily, but have a passing score like they would for that's, any sort of exam, right? That's correct. And we have seen graded exams returned to us with, you know, a 60% on there. And we have to question, is a 60% really a passing grade? You know, what is your procedure listed as a passing grade? Is it really 60%? Because in school, usually that's a failing grade. Yeah, and if you're the manager of that laboratory and you get somebody that, that gets a 60%, that tells you you need have some work to do on training, right? So it's a good tool. That's a correct, and that means you might want to sit down with them and go over stuff and, and walk through things with them in the laboratory as well. Yeah, now that objectivity aspect is, is kind of hard. Like you said, it's kind of hard for us to tell for sure, but we have a little bit more assurance with the external programs, right? Correct. Um, now, Amy, I'm going to send this over to you. How do we evaluate the external programs? Yeah, so it's actually a pretty big process. We just finished going through all of the external certification programs that we're aware of this summer. And what that involves is we start by looking on the websites to see 
what information we can gather. Typically, there isn't enough public-facing information on a certification program to get everything we need to evaluate, again, evaluate it against the ASTM quality management system standards. So then we'll reach out individually to the contacts of these certification programs and ask for additional information. Typically, they're pretty forthcoming of giving us any information that we need and answering our questions because they realize that a lot of our customers are then becoming their customers as long as we look at their information and see that they meet the minimum requirements for the ASTM quality management system standards. Yeah, now when it comes to state DOTs, I think a lot of the, the laboratories use state DOT certification programs because some of them are required every year uh, for technicians or they have a certain interval that's a little tighter than some of the private certification programs. What's our experience like with those state programs? Are they forthcoming about the the uh, the questions, and do we ever work with them to to kind of improve them or get them into conformance with some of those standard requirements, like a C ten seventy seven? Amy, sorry. Yeah, so this varies <laughs> a lot from lab uh, from state DOT to state DOT. We've actually had some DOTs that have given us access to their exams, and we've been able to review them and. Um, give them pointers on the same way we would do for any third-party commercial laboratories on what they need to do to make their written exams in conformance with the ASTM quality management system standards. And they've made those changes and hopefully now feel that they have a better product. We have actually had a few DOTs over the years also that haven't been forthcoming as we would like them to be with giving us information. And in turn, we just don't have enough information to confidently confidently accept their certification programs. So at least on a temporary basis, we stop accepting their certification programs until they are able to give us the information that we need. Yeah, that's. A, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I have heard from customers before that, you know, because we're Ashto and because our sponsor are, are the DOTs, sometimes people assume that we give them an out or we have some preferential treatment for the state DOTs. Uh, I know that that's not true because I work at Ashto and, and I know what we do and how we handle things. Is there, well, I don't want to name any specific DOTs <laughs> that we haven't accepted, but how do we, how do we encourage those DOTs or let's say it's even a private certification program uh, to be more forthcoming with their exams? It's beneficial for a state DOT or a certification program to uh, let us review things and help them out through the process to make sure they are meeting the requirements because they are going to get feedback from their technicians saying, hey, your program doesn't meet, so we're not going to be able to use you anymore. Well, a certification program doesn't want to hear that. Um, of course, DOTs may require their technicians to still take those programs, but they're going to also have to invest in additional money to find a program that actually meets the requirements. So they're going to hear a lot of negative feedback and no one wants to hear negative feedback. So everybody should just work together to try to meet the requirements and, and have the best certification programs that are out there for the technicians. Amy, if I'm a laboratory and I'm about to go through the accreditation process and I'm looking at all the standards that I need to be accredited for and I see some of these standards that require certification. And let's say I've never had certified technicians before. It's not something that my laboratory uh, was required to do ever. Where do I begin? How do I find a program that's in conformance to the requirements of the standard and is going to be accepted by our program? 
A lot of people start by reaching out to other labs in the area to find out how they certify their technicians. But I always recommend reading, reaching out to your state quality analysts because we have a master internal list of all the programs that we review. And by going through that, if you touch base with us, we can let you know what we accept and what isn't accepted. And if something's not accepted that a laboratory was considering, we'll let them know why it's not accepted. That way, whenever they're making their decision, you know, they may still go with that external certification, but use it in combination with an internal certification. So let me follow up with another question, Amy, uh, and this is a, I would call this a frequently asked question that I get about certification programs. They're able to contact you and Trudy and the other quality analysts and ask about specific programs, but why don't we just publish the list of all the acceptable and unacceptable programs? So it's our goal to eventually publish all this information. At this time, we don't feel like we have a good enough grasp on every certification program as far as what's covered, what's not covered. Like I said, we did just finish a detailed review this summer. So we're working on going through that information, making it as complete as possible. And hopefully in the future, we will have that available that a laboratory is able to get on our website and search for a certification program and see what's covered by it. Yeah, and I and I will add one more thought to that. And, and there is a concern about understanding of the of that table and what what does it really mean a lot of times when we say something's acceptable they, they it gets mixed in with it's good mm-hmm. we're not saying it's a good program we're saying it's in conformance with certain requirements so some people may say well we're not listing that so it's not a good program or it's not worthwhile or it's it's not useful that may not, it may be an excellent certification program it may just not check all the boxes on the standards and I know that to some detractors from accreditation or certification program, they may say, oh, it's just box checking. It's not. I mean, we really put a lot of effort into checking the sufficiency and usefulness of these certification programs. But when it come to, comes down to it, if it's not in conformance with the basic minimum criteria that have been laid out, we can't just say it's good or it's acceptable because we think it's a good program and it has to meet certain requirements. I'll add that add to that, Brian, as well. I'm a big proponent of, of getting that table out into the hands of our laboratories, but we we don't want to have the confusion that we are certifying other certification programs. And that's not what this table is is doing. And that's not what we want that message to go across. So that's another reason why we're apprehensive of releasing this table. Um, and also there can be errors, you know, we're human, but we did the best we could based on the information we received, whether it was on their website or in um, phone call conversations or email conversations. So there is room for error as well, but we definitely are not certifying other certification programs. That's a great point. And it is, I, I will say, it is hard for us to get information from some of these programs at times. Some of them are unwilling to share the information. And sometimes it's just we don't know the right person. Like if you're talking about a DOT program, sometimes they sub all that work out to a university or a community college or some other entity to carry out that work. And we may not know the contact uh, that can give us the answers we need. So we kind of rely on a chain of different people, starting with the DOT contacts we know to get the right information. But a lot of times it's different departments heading it up and it can be challenging. So we don't want to have a public facing statement to say this this uh, program 
absolutely does not conform just because we're in the process of gathering information that we've not quite gotten yet. So there, there are plenty of risks that we've kind of laid out as to why we might not be able to release that information the way we have it now, at least. Uh, but like uh, Amy and Trudy were alluding to, we do want to eventually get some of that information in the hands of laboratories, customers, and certification programs so that they understand uh, where they stand and what's available to them. So thank you guys so much. We've covered a lot of topics today on certifications, and this was all kind of a precursor to an upcoming webinar that's going to be offered on November 19th of uh, 2020 to talk about certification issues. Uh, Trudy, do you want to give anybody a, a sneak peek into that uh, webinar? What kind of issues are you going to talk about, or what, are there going to be any uh, interactive elements to that webinar? Yes, Brian, we are going to have interactive things on our webinar. We're going to be taking some little polls and surveys. We're going to go over technician certifications requirements for various standards. And then we're going to have like little questions and we're going to give you examples based on this scenario and this scenario. Do we think the technician meets? And then we're going to ask the guests in the webinar what they think. And then we'll go over those answers. And if we feel people aren't grasping Everything will review it a little bit better, but uh, just how to do technician certifications. And we'll also talk about in-house written exams and, and what you need to include in those exams. Amy, who might be a good audience for that webinar? We're hoping for anyone who either is looking to get their staff certified or already has their staff certified and is looking for maybe new certification programs and they're not sure what the minimum requirements are. We want them, those people to, extent, uh, to attend, but absolutely anyone who their laboratory is already accredited or they're looking at seeking accreditation in the future and they think that they would have an ASTM quality management system standard requirement, we would love for them to attend. And Trudy, how much does this thing cost? It's free. <laughs> yeah, I knew that one, but I had to ask. <laughs> uh, now, the, the other the other thing I wanted to mention is this is a lot of this content is from the presentation that was supposed to be given at the technical exchange that was going to be in Minneapolis in March. Is that correct, Trudy? That's correct. This past March, we did have a presentation scheduled uh, technician certification requirements. But unfortunately, the meetings got canceled due to COVID, so we're trying to release some of this information, get this out in the hands of our laboratories to help them as well. It's not going to cover everything, but it'll give them a rough idea of some things, and hopefully it's helpful to laboratories. Well, thank you. I think it will be. And I, just one last thing I want to mention is that uh, if you have any questions about certifications, external programs, or anything we talked about, you can get in touch with Trudy Kiefer. Her email is tkiefer at ashtoresource.org. And Trudy, what's your uh, phone number? 240-575-8064. And then for Amy Reed, it's just areed at ashtoresource.org. And Amy, what's your number if somebody wants to call with questions? So my phone number is 240-436-4860. All right, so thank you both for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian. And please check out that webinar on November 19th. And thank you for listening to the podcast. 
Thanks for listening to Ashta Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resources' Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org.